to the board game community show. I'm your host, Riley Starr. Join me as I get to know folks in this community. They could be designers or streamers, podcasters, YouTubers, publishers, whatever. Really anything with a nerd at the end of its title is welcome here on the board game community show. Show, show. Welcome back to the Board Game Community Show. Today, I am so excited to welcome Tanya Pobeda. Now, this is recorded after the fact because we got talking and I didn't want to interrupt that flow. So we're just going to jump on in mid-go. Mid Enjoy. Oh, I should have asked. Okay, uh, I'm trying to say your name right. Pobeda? Yeah, it's Tanya. So sort of all for the A. And Pobeda. Which is P, yeah. So it's po bud uh. Okay. We we anglicized it as much as we reasonably possibly could. So what was it like? What do you know? What it was originally? I had a very earnest uh, Ukrainian nun once tell me that the actual pronunciation should be povida, which makes no sense because it, that's not the letters. But yeah, my <laughs> my dad actually grew up in foster care, so he doesn't he doesn't know anything about Czech culture, nothing. And I often get asked. Um, it means something hilarious in in the Czech language. Uh, it means means hobo, but ruder. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> interesting. You often see it on online with an exclamation mark. It just means, you know, someone's being insulted. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. My wife is, uh, was, well, she has, um, oh gosh, now I'm, oh, Armenian. Yes. Like yeah. ancestry. And so like when they came to America, they like changed the name, her last name. And now it's mispronounced all the time. Oh yeah. And and it's like, why, why, why'd you change it? You know, like I collect those stories. I think they're so fascinating. I have a, a colleague or a boss actually, who's a CTO, a chief technology officer at a tech company. His name was Oblenis. And I said, I've never heard that name before, you know, in Irish. And he said, no, we're actually Danish, but the customs official in Canada, when my great grandfather came to Canada, made it into an Irish name because he said you'd, you'd get jobs better. So oh, wow. it's, it's a made up name with an O. Oh, apostrophe Blennis. It's fascinating. Anyway, that is lots of stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. My great, great grandfather, like, uh, was native, native American. And, uh, and they like on his nationality or something, they just wrote in ruddy. Yeah. Yeah. So just like, yeah, hmm. it's okay. It's unbelievable. Yep. Yeah. Or race. That was probably a race was like ruddy rather than. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that's a huge thing. That's a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. It's there's a lot of stories like that with uh, customs officials. Lots of Canadian stories about people with odd names that were just given to them by you know custom official. My, my stepfather actually, uh, his name is Charlie, um, but his real name is Gerardus Antonius uh, Marie de Bruin, um, but the customs official said Charlie. So wow. Yeah, his whole family has very, very uh, odd names as a result. Yeah, huh? That is fascinating. It's sad. Uh, it is. 
but I, I don't know. Hopefully things are, you know, things are better now. I, in some no, ways. No, actually that ramps us perfectly into our discussion. In fact, I think, I don't, I don't think things are better now, unfortunately, but yeah, there, you know, there may be more um, policy surrounding it uh, possibly, but there's still that kind of systemic racism, you know, nationalism, um, sexism, you know, in, in multiple spheres across our whole society. So it, it does, it does still, um, it does still exist. It shouldn't, but, uh, you know, uh, what is the expression history rhymes? You see, you see this, uh, recalled again and again, this kind of, this kind of behavior. So I was more so meaning just the name thing that we don't change. Do, do you think we still change oh, people's uh, names when they, a thousand percent, a thousand percent. I worked in oh, tech. Really? Yeah. Um, just as a complete aside, actually members, I, I've, I've talked about this on Twitter, but, um, entire, uh, part of my family is not named Pobeda. Um, they're named, uh, Adams actually, um, because they had trouble getting work in, I'm from Alberta, Canada. Uh, they were in the ranching community in cow calf and, uh, various, uh, you know, cattle, uh, ranching and they had trouble getting work because they had, um, what this is a sort of pejorative um, slur for people of East European dis- descent. Uh, you're a bohunk is the is the rude word for it. So they actually decided uh, they couldn't take it anymore. Uh, so and this is, uh, you know, Alberta is actually very East European, very Ukrainian. And um, this part of my family just decided we can't have the name Pobeda anymore because it seems too ethnic. Um, so they changed their name to something very British sounding and did better um, in the work world uh, at the time. And um, yeah, it happens, uh, you know, in tech, um, I have a lot of uh, colleagues from China, um, and they will, they will anglicize their name, simply because it is too difficult for people, you know, in in Canada and the US to, to tolerate. And that I find, you know, uh, my side of the family, uh, very militant about keeping our name. So, um, and and I think I'm really heartened to see that more and more people are saying, Nope, I'm not going to call myself David, I'm just going to use my my real name. And I really like that. I think that's important. Um, that's important. Me too. I, yeah, I appreciate, and I appreciate you correcting me on that because this is how we learn. Like (laughs) there's plenty of times where I'm having conversations with people and I'm like, I'm wrong. (laughs) And I leave it in there because it's important to learn from, you know, if I'm ignorant, so are other people. Yeah. And, and you know what, um, I've got, I, I'm so struck, uh, going back to school after so many years in industry, um, I have so much to learn, um, so, so much to learn, and I'm learning every single day. And I think that that has to be true of all of us, mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the more you go into a topic, the more you realize you know nothing and you have to keep going. Um, and I think that if we're all in that space, if we all have the ability to be in that space, that's how change happens. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You got to start researching it, having a good, uh, good discourse about it, you know, and, and getting the conversation going. Yeah. And being, and being open to being open to feedback and being open to just as you say, like correction. Um, and I, I am so grateful when people say, Hey, you're not quite right about that. And that's actually the wonderful, wonderful thing about academia is that's knowledge production, right? You, you pause it, you make a, you have a hypothesis, you try to prove it, and then people come and, you know, attempt to falsify it. And you need to answer that. You need to answer those questions. And as you do, and as you, you get feedback from folks, you you produce knowledge. 
And that's, that's the process. It's, it's, it's like the scientific ne- method. It is the scientific method. <laughs> that's, that's literally it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I didn't do the intro, but I'll just record that later because sure. this is great. And I don't want to break the organic flow. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess before we dive into even more of, you know, like research and, uh, and learning there, how did you get into board games? Yeah. Um, well, I, I was, uh, so I grew up in kind of the middle of nowhere, as we frequently said, growing up, uh, middle of nowhere, northern um, Alberta, which is uh, really far north for folks that maybe know some landmarks. Uh, we're about four hours away from the Northwest Territories. Uh, we grew up in a really small farming uh, community outside of a town called Peace River. Um, and so as a result, what I had to do was um, board games, uh, and I grew up with them. I was really obsessed with this idea. Like I, I was with that that jerk little kid that you know memorized Trivial Pursuit cards, um, <laughs> and I played the game Masterpiece like over and over and over again. Like trying to you know become a art history major. You know when I was eleven, um, learning about art, and I I was really obsessed with this idea that you know board games could actually you know, teach me something. I also had this, you know, I guess this is sort of board game adjacent. um, And I was telling my daughter about this just the other day. I had this little ridiculous robot called 2XL, which people, if anyone remembers it, please just hit me up on Twitter. Um, They're all broken uh, because there were basically eight track centered technologies. And it was like a trivia game. You could press buttons and answer questions, and it played eight tracks, and of course, they're all they're all broken. And I, I've tried to find one on eBay. Um, and I was really, really obsessed with board games from a really young age. And then I, you know, went off to university and got involved in folks who like to play Risk, <laughs> which I've written an article about on Medium. Um, and you know, days long, unfortunate games of Risk and learning. But I loved board games. But there was something off about a lot of my experiences with board games. And I kind of, you know, I was a mom. Um, I had to stop playing. I was a single mom, so I had to. I had. We, I always played with my daughter, but we just didn't have a lot of time for really complicated games. And but I've they've been a part of my life my whole life uh, for as long as I can remember. I was obsessed with chess, uh, checkers. You know, I loved anything that was board game related, and you know, it's been a part of my life. You know, s- since as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Wow. That's really impressive. So before you started doing all this really cool research, you, I mean, you weren't do you weren't necessarily involved in like the board game industry at that time, right? No, no. Um, so I actually, um, my career trajectory is, is kind of uh, strange. I, I started as a reporter. I was a tech reporter. Um, and I, you know, very early tech uh, in the early 90s, I was uh, reporting with a, a variety of different uh, tech publications. I was an editor there. At a couple of publications that were Canadian-based, uh, you know, uh, Computing Canada, Technology and Government, Systems Integrator Magazine, all fascinating titles. And uh, I worked there for a bunch of years. I met people like, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, uh, you know, um, Larry Ellison, uh, really early tech in Canada. Um, and I got to, I, you know, that was sort of how I started my career. And I thought I'd be a reporter for my my whole life. But unfortunately, I had a, uh, my uh, daughter's father was a PhD, unfortunately, uh, a PhD <laughs> student, and I needed to make more money than I was making in reporting, because it was it was a really tight time. It was like a, a recessionary period in Canada. And I, I decided to make the pivot into working for tech companies. 
And, you know, from and from tech companies, I went into working with multinational uh, agencies and I worked in the video game industry uh, through Microsoft, really early Microsoft, like uh, Monster Truck Madness and um, <laughs> oh, wow. uh, yeah. Flight, Sim- Flight Simulator was the jewel in our crown at that point. And so I worked in, in, in games uh, for uh, a while. And then I, I moved, you know, corporate side and, and it was mainly in tech. And then I decided um, the, the tech market in Ottawa was was kind of bottoming out. So I, I made a pivot to healthcare uh, and life sciences because there was a little bit more vitality in that sector. And, you know, decided to go back to school uh, and do a master's and then got hooked on it and decided to do a, a doctorate. But, you know, I have always touched on games. Um, this was something that I was, you know, looking at in corporate Canada with gamification. I did a lot of research. I was very research oriented uh, professional. A lot of my colleagues were like, you're like a prof uh, when I would do all this intense, because re- I wanted to be, I want things that we did to be supportable. And actually Microsoft, working for Microsoft was a really eye-opening experience because they were very research oriented too. And they kind of demanded that, um, they met, demanded that kind of rigor, which was great. And I worked in scientific and technical computing with a lot of PhDs and, you know, it was just, uh, you know, that research orientation was something that was kind of required of me. And, and, you know, it just made, it made a little bit of sense to me. I, and I also craved, the idea of going back to school, um, but yeah, I you know I've always been a little bit adjacent to to gaming, especially in tech, because it was such a big part of you know the culture and um, and of course the industry. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Uh, I'm we'll have questions that tie into this later. Now, uh, so then you go back to school and. You, you're obviously you don't go back to school and you're like I'm gonna do board games but how did, did that transition to doing the board game research yeah you know that was not my plan actually um I was I was not planning to do a dissertation on board games at all I was actually instead uh, making this weird concoction I was I was studying AI and VR and I was studying it because there's a lot of discourse around you know virtual reality and empathy and training and teaching people to care about each other and you know, work, work better together. And I had this notion, I did a ton of research into like, how to promote empathy in the workplace and, and, you know, help cohesion. And I uh, made all these weird and wonderful chatbots. I got certified on IBM Watson, I was doing all of this bizarre work in VR was making 3d models. And then I realized uh, I had a really long conversation with a bunch of researchers in the field. And one in particular, who's an indigenous scholar, said, you know, essentially, it's all um, BS. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we had this really interesting talk. And she said, you know, she made a really good point. And I, and I, it, ch- it kind of changed the way and a lot of the reading I was doing was saying the same thing that putting, putting someone in a VR helmet, and saying, okay, care about people, isn't going to work. And I had kind of been skirting around the edges of that for a while with my research, realizing that the sort of tech essentialism that I had been a part of, where it's like, you know, if you're sad, why don't you get an app for that? You can't sleep. How about an app? Um, And I started to get really pessimistic about that being the solution. And, you know, at the same time, I was looking for some publishing and I worked with Analog Game Studies, uh, the journal, which is a terrific journal about uh, tabletop games and RPGs, Um, a really great team there. 
And, you know, I did a little small scale study, basically, because I was irritated that I couldn't find the answer to, you know, what's the demography of board game designers, I couldn't couldn't find it. I started Googling, and then I found this great study uh, by um, uh, Aaron Ryan in 2016 about, you know, you're more likely to see an image of a sheep than you are of a, a human woman on a cover. And I was really shocked by that. And I thought, okay, you know, and she did this really wonderful analysis of like kind of prominent studies, which I think is a really cool methodology. And, but I still couldn't find a systemic answer to, you know, who designs board games? Because, you know, publishing had been doing a lot of that work. Uh, television, web series, film had been looking at who has speaking parts. And I was frustrated I couldn't find the answer. So I did this really small scale study saying, you know, of the 200 top uh, top ranked board game geek games, you know, 93.5% of the designers are white men. Um, and a lot of that de demographic surveying was not happening in board games uh, for reasons that we can get into in a, a little bit later. But that industry, the industry of board games is a little more opaque than other industries in terms of, you know, they don't have a governance board necessarily, they may be a private company. So they don't have the same standards of reporting, there's less, you know, transparency and accountability. I used to work for publicly traded companies, and my specialty was annual reporting, to say, okay, here's the composition of our board, this is, you know, how we get our funding, this is how we're structured. Um, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, especially with small or mid tier companies, they're, they're just a private group of people. And they're not doing that kind of accountability reporting. So, you know, just my frustration of not being able to find the answer to a question while I was Googling it, uh, just I thought, I'll just do it myself. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll be systematic. I'll do the re research ethic board thing. I'll, and I'll make something that the, the, the industry can look at to say, okay, this is the composition. And so that's how I got into it. And then that study kind of blew up a little bit, you know, re relatively uh, for acad academics. And it got cited in the Wall Street, uh, not the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, a bunch of a bunch of outlets picked it up. And I was really surprised by the 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 kind of uh, response to that really small scale study. And I thought, well, there's something here. There's a real gap. And at the same time, I was thinking board games are the empathy machine. Maybe not VR, right? Board games have a little bit more low cost of entry, um, whereas VR is very, very elitist in, in that it is very expensive. Um, and, and there were some real, I, we, I could go on and on about this, but there were some real barriers to VR actually helping people connect. Um, and I thought, you know, board games actually maybe have a, a key that might unlock some empathy. Um, but then, you know, finding out that there's a lot of systemic, large scale problems, both, you know, in other industries, just like we were talking about with border and customs uh, services and people, you know, emigrating uh, or immigrating into um, into Canada and the US, there's systemic issues, oppressive issues um, on a very large scale across our wider society, and that those are playing out, of course, in in board games uh, and, the, and in the sector. So, you know, I thought I'm going to pivot. Um, I'm going to, and I actually have hundreds of pages of research on VR. If anyone should want it ever, um, <laughs> it's unpublished. Uh, but you know, I abandoned it, and much to the I think chagrin of of my program, they were like, "You were doing this great tech stuff, and now you're doing board games." But um, but I, I think board games really deserve the scholarly attention. I agree. Yeah, like I can go and find so many things about the demographics on video games, uh, 
who watches what shows, you know, like there's all that information out. And I do that sometimes. I'm curious, like, oh, you know, what percentage and like women rising in video games? You know, I think the most recent one had it like at 49% or 51%, depending on which one you look at, like it's pretty much neck and neck. And and going back even to like when video games were being put into stores, the reason they're seen as male is because they had to choose men's or like the little boys toy section or the little girls toy section. A thousand percent. And you know, that's actually one of the arguments I make in my dissertation. It, it's, it's that video games kind of got the memo, um, mm-hmm. which board games is starting to get, I think, I hope um, that they needed to expand. And, you know, I, I, there's a piece that I've written, it's, it's yet to be published, but it, it, I, I sort of parallel my experiences in early tech with the experiences I, or the, the, the sort of market trajectory that I'm seeing in board gaming now, where, you know, I had a couple of clients, uh, one client uh, said, you know what, women don't care about computing. They don't care about it. Uh, I don't care what you say. I would constantly be bringing them, you know, evidence to the contrary. And they would say, no, no, really, it's only middle class, suburban, white male engineers that care about this. And, you know, no matter what I pitched, I would bring them like new opportunities all the time for advertising or promotions, saying, you know, this is a demographic we need to, to take on. And they would say, no, 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 you don't understand. And that company doesn't exist anymore. Whereas another company that I worked for uh, really focused, they were actually, their entire organization was comped on market expansion and bringing in women, bringing in, you know, grandmas, bringing in, um, you know, newcomers to Canada, bringing, they were really focused. They actually didn't even care about the revenues. They cared about market growth. They said, you know what, we know we have this particular demographic, the white male, suburban, affluent demographic. We, we have them already. We're going to keep maintaining that relationship with them. We're not going to abandon them, but we're going to expand. And that company now is one of the biggest companies in the world. And, you know, one of the things that the discipline that I bring based on my my corporate background is you must always, if you think about maybe a wartime metaphor for war gamers like myself, you establish a beachhead, you build a market, you you have a a jumping off point, you you create that beachhead, you, you secure it, it's yours, then you radiate out. And a lot of companies, I think, as based on my observation, have really forgotten that you must now radiate out. You know, I know it's really comfortable to stay in the beachhead. You know, you got your supply lines, you got your comfort. It, and it does cost, it does cost effort, it does cost time, it does cost in terms of your cognition and your perspective taking, working with different audiences, but you simply must do that to flourish as a business. And a lot of organizations, I think, have really retrenched and said, you know what, we're sticking with what we know. We're not even going to bother talking to other markets. We're going to, you know, maybe we'll make a little niche game for that's pink for women, you know, or we'll do this little thing over here. Ah, it didn't work out. We didn't invest and just stick to their knitting as they, they think that is, which is, you know, sticking with their core base. And they're afraid to radiate out of that beachhead. But if you don't, you will stay small. You will stay, stay niche and kind of irrelevant to a wider population. And so, you know, that's kind of the, the I think the big idea and the thrust of my, um, my dissertation is I actually do create those parallels between video games, 
where they have expanded. They have made the pivot. I mean, not not perfectly, but the, you can see the the growth they're experiencing across demographies as a result. And board gaming's not not yet there. You know, it's getting there, but it's slow. It's really fascinating to see, and I, I think that you know some of this. There's like the advertising right of like having a bunch of white people on the cover art, you know, like throw in some diversity because you've already got the white audience. Like, like a white guy's not going to look at a box and be like, Oh, it's got a black woman on it. I'm not interested in that game. And if they are screw them, I don't want them, you know, (laughs) a thousand percent, a thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah. But then like we even dive into the rule books, right? Like, Oh my goodness. And it still happens. Like, I, I think that we're past that, but I'll be reading a game from 2020 and it's like, he, they use the pronoun he dominantly throughout it. Never she, the player is always a he. And it's just like, we have a gender neutral pronoun. It's called they, they, them use that or yeah. mix it up or use examples, you know, Sally and Paul. And, you know, like uh, if you want to use pronouns, he, she, but like, ah, it drives me nuts. You know, I actually did, uh, I did with uh, a colleague, Dr. Shelley Jones, uh, for Analog Game Studies, a systematic review of uh, board game rule books. And I, I looked at the top 40 games, and I looked at the rule books. And what I discovered was exactly as you're saying, that there was a preponderance of um, the use of the he pronoun in reference to gamers. And I actually heard from uh, folks in my research basically talking about how, you know, it was a mom sharing with me that, you know, when she's reading board game rule books, she swaps out the pronouns so her daughter won't feel upset and offended for being completely left out. And you're absolutely right. I mean, people need to embrace the singular they. It's been around since the 13th century. There are, you know, uh, classic epic poems with the singular they. It's not a problem. It's been, you know, embraced by uh, officially, you know, re-endorsed by Merriam-Webster. It needs to be, it needs to be used. And I think that the other thing that we, we found out, um, and I highly recommend the article, I'm, I'm really proud of it, with uh, Dr. Shelley Jones on, in analog game studies is, you know, we talk about best practices in rule books and how to bring people in. And there's all kinds of psychology about saying you um, to, to folks. So, you know, if, uh, board games are basically like a performance. You know, it is a performance. It's a joint performance with a bunch of people. And if you say, okay, you then take five cards, it feels better, you know, for the reader to say, okay, it's basically like, a nice teacher, you know, an invitation, somebody, a, a party organizer, uh, you know, uh, uh, a person coordinating the, the dance saying, okay, now you take this. And we, we kind of go through and say, here are some best practices for rule book creation that you might consider because it, it deepens a feeling of in- intimacy in the player, right? And if you do something like he pron- pronouns entirely in reference to the player, it sends a signal of, you know, exclusion, you're not welcome here. You know, when I was a kid, and I was reading rule books, which invariably had he, I would think I'm a weird, I'm a weird girl. Why do I like doing this when I shouldn't be doing this? You know, my and even some of my girlfriends would say, you're weird, you're doing boy stuff. Why are you doing that? And it was like all of these messages I was getting from the wider world saying, okay, well, I must be odd. Because I, I, I want to play risk, you know, 
I'm sitting here memorizing Trivial Pursuit cards. I really I can't believe I did that. It was very obnoxious. I literally read literature so I could win that game. Um, and that's the, the, the signals, the messages that we as a wider culture send to everyone about what is a, the proper pastime for, you know, uh, someone who's black or indigenous or a person of color and uh, or a woman or non-binary person or LGBTQ plus. This is, you know, this isn't for you. This isn't really for you. And that message clearly is getting through because if you look at stats, you know, again, publisher stats for participation in board game fora, uh, you know, people who sign up to subscribe to various publisher sites. Uh, Elizabeth Hargrave did this fantastic analysis of that, that OMG, my wife wants to play your game uh, study that she did. It, it demonstrates that people are like, well, I shouldn't really participate in this board game for uh, or in this group or in this design group because this isn't really for me. It's not not really the kind of thing I should be doing, you know, and, and that's obviously when you look at the data skew, skew where you see the population and obviously there are more women than men in Canada and in the U.S. by uh, I think 0.4 and 0.5 percent respectively. Um, when a population, uh, when a, when a representative sample doesn't look like the population, something's up, right? There's either policy, there's segregation, you know, whether legalistically or, you know, socially, when you see that kind of data skew, you know, something's pushing hard against it, not representing the population. And that's kind of another big idea in my research. That is really fascinating. I, uh, as you mentioned, Elizabeth Hargrave. And so I wanted to share a quick story because I had her on a couple of weeks ago. It was, she is so awesome. She is so cool. Uh, but she was talking about like, you know, I hope that like, I don't know if it actually helps like women get into board games or not. I feel like it does. And like, you know, like being humble, she knows it does. Right. <laughs> um, but we went to SaltCon, my wife and I, and we were sitting down playing a game and the women next to us, Two women just had a couple of a stack of games they got from the game library there and they started to play wingspan and they were bringing it out and starting to read through the rule book and they're like oh i love this art oh i love this and they're like oh who's the designer elizabeth hargrave and like oh a, a woman and cool and like who's the artist and she reads through the three artists and they're like those those are all women and one of them joked like oh my gosh we're so sexist that we assumed that this was just made by men and like, no, there's not a man on this, on this, you know, board here. Or, and, uh, and they were blown away by that. And and they were genuinely happy. Like it was probably like a five minute conversation about how cool that was. And like, and how happy that made them just to play it and feel like, no wonder we were attracted to this game. Like it was so cool. And my, I just, it was like a little fly on the wall there while my wife and I were playing another game. Cause we've had that same conversation. She'll play anything Elizabeth Hargrave cause she loved wingspan. She loves Mariposas. I got to get her tussy mussy, <laughs> but that, you know, rep representation matters, representation 100% matters. And, you know, Elizabeth Hargrave has done so much. Like she is a great example of someone who, you know, has used her success to lift other people up. I, she maintains a repository that I use all the time. It's incredible where her website is mostly, you know, other women in board game design, black voices in board game design. And it's this wonderful repository that, that you know, people visiting her page or her website can see other designers and, and find other people to work with 
in the industry. So she's using her voice to uplift. And she's also an amazing researcher. She's an incredible researcher. And that um, the research that she did, that OMG, my wife wants to play your game presentation, is so thorough, so good. And it's that empirical evidence that we need. And we just need to platform you know, all of these different voices to to make some change in, in the industry. She's done wonderful work. She's great. I, and it's fun hearing stories about her from other people who've met her. And they're just like, yeah, we went and played an escape room with her. And she was just so fun. And like, anyways, no, she's <laughs> we're great. not gushing about Elizabeth. But, <laughs> you know, uh, interestingly, I, I got an opportunity. Uh, Dr. Paul Booth and Dr. Aaron Trammell. Uh, Dr. Trammell is the editor of Analog Game Studies. Actually has gotten, um, it's a series of books that are being written about board games. Um, so they're short books. They're short, sort of accessible, non-academic books about various important games. And I actually was able to pitch and uh, succeed in that pitch to write a a small book. It's a short book. It's about uh, uh, 30,000 words on Wingspan. So I'm actually in the middle of of writing that right now. And the stories uh, around Wingspan that are out there in, you know, the sort of board game press are so fantastic. Just as you say, like it was such an intentional uh, the artists, the stories from the artists who drew the birds, like they're so beautiful. And the stories around the production of Wingspan are so fantastic that I, I think as a fan of the game myself, it was so fun to read some of those stories and just, you know, learn about um, Elizabeth Hargrave's process, how the the artwork was produced. It was just fantastic. And it's really like wonderful to hear and read as I was doing this research about how it's a lot of women like helping each other and, you know, supporting each other and the artist's stories about, you know, being a mom and juggling all of these responsibilities when you have this juggernaut of a deadline to, you know, produce all of these hundreds of cards, each work of each, each of those bird drawings, the paintings were, you know, hours, 20 hours long in some cases. And imagine the labor that went into that. And I, it's, it's a fantastic story. It's a really fantastic story. That is awesome. Well, I look forward to your book coming out. Is there an ETA? It's a it's a ways away. Yeah, apparently um, I had been working as though it were due uh, now um, because that's what <laughs> I tend to do. I, as a former reporter, you know, if I miss a deadline, it, it makes me very upset. But it's it's it, I think they're saying sometime later next year or early 2024. So you know these these processes can take a while. Um, academic uh, publishing can can take a while, which you know is a good thing, right? Because it's uh, you make sure that it's very rigorous and it's you know um, fully. Ch- uh, fact checked and yeah edited yeah oh absolutely that makes a lot of sense yeah uh i'm curious though like as i reflect on that story you know it's easy enough to identify a woman in a as a designer as a you know names uh but for people of color that's the representation in game design is it seems like a a different hurdle. I'm not going to say more challenging, but different. Uh, Yeah. The representation of um, uh, black indigenous persons of color identities in board games is absolutely abysmal. Um, In fact, it's much worse than the gender divide. Um, So, you know, just the the statistics from my dissertation yet to be published, uh, 82.5% of representation on the top 200 board game geek uh, ranked games Uh, 82.5% is of a white presenting human. Um, Because what I did was I counted every single animate object on every single cover 
uh, in the top 200. That was about almost uh, 2,000 images. I counted everything from birds. Yeah, it was really fiddly. Uh, From birds to dragons, ogres, orcs, imps, everything. Um, So I could do comparisons. And what I found was 82.5% of the human representation where I could determine, you know, race, um, was, was overwhelmingly white. So more than 80% and 17.5% of the representation was of a black indigenous person of color. So a BIPOC representation or person of the, the global majority, which I, is a term I'm, 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 I'm embracing now, uh, because that is empirically true. 80% of the world's population is a black indigenous person of color. Uh, and only 20% of the population is is white. And so we've got this really interesting kind of inverse with board game representation where you've got 80%, more than 80%, 82.5% white. And what's, and I didn't actually, you know, wade into this in my dissertation, but one of the things that that I, I, I hear a lot from folks is, you know, of the 17.5% representation uh, that is Black, Indigenous, or a person of color, um, it's not always positive. In fact, in many cases, it's quite negative. And, you know, I actually put that to one side because I'm a white woman. I'm a white settler in Canada. I have no um, I, I am not an authority on what would be offensive or not offensive. I know c- certain things hit me. Um, I actually made a little pile of things uh, that I took pictures of just to say, okay, you know, leave this for later when I can crowdsource and collaborate with people on how these image these images land with them. So that's a that's a, a another research project. But you know, when you look at that seventeen point five percent, they're not positive images. Um, in many cases, you know, of the representation of women, which was similarly really tiny, um, you've got, you know, uh, 70, uh, 76.8% of all of the representation on cover art is male, or a man or a boy, and only 23.2%, so, you know, just a little over 20%, is of a woman. And of those women that I pooled, you know, in, in that analysis... Um, a lot of them are super scantily clad. Um, they're, you know, obviously drawn for the male gaze. They're they're not there as a, a heroic figure. If they are wearing armor, it's not very helpful to them uh, because it's really barely there. Um, and so you've got this this interesting thing. So you know, there's very small amounts of representation. What there is, you know, even though it is small, is incredibly offensive to most. And there are very, very scant numbers of, you know, covers that I can, I can recall in the analysis that I did, where it was like, okay, yeah, this is a heroic, I mean, pandemic is a great example of one that, 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 you know, showed representation, showed women being prominent, showed them being, you know, uh, capable, they're fully clothed, uh, and they're professional, and they're, you know, obviously heroic. Um, But there aren't very many examples like that, unfortunately. Yeah, well, and it's, you're nailing it. I mean, obviously you researched this, but like, you know, my wife and I, we have this discussion all the time. Like we, she'll, we'll be in the game store and she'll see some woman and it'll be like, what is that armor doing for her? Like nothing. What is, you know, like (laughs) all of these things. And she just gets so annoyed with like how sexualized women are. I think even talking to like Eric uh, Lang, he was talking about uh, death may die and how there was some kickback because they made some women, that weren't sex objects, like yep. that they were heroes and that they weren't like dressed to be, you know, appealing to the man and serve the man. Uh, and, and it's sad because that's not that old of a game. Like it just shows 
how long ago that was and that it's still like we're still fighting that and that people have a problem with women being drawn normally like this is it yeah and there was a, a really interesting uh twitter thread recently um uh, morning star uh who, who i uh, follow on twitter i'm a big fan of they were basically posting um sexualized male armor and it was such a striking image. It was, you know, like a piece of armor was, it was like a piece of chain mail. It was, it was a beautiful photo, but it was a piece of chain mail that basically just covered one shoulder and an arm and that's it. And they were shirtless and they were, they looked absolutely beautiful, but it was like showing what, you know, um, armor could look like if we, you know, equally sexualized both men and women in these kind of high fantasy contexts. And I really like the comments that Morningstar was making about, you know, okay, if you're going to do sexualized armor that is barely there and won't help anyone, then do it for both, um, you know, masculine presenting and femme presenting people. um, And, you know, give, give everybody that kind of equal playing field where everyone is suddenly, you know, scantily clad. If you're going to do it, then do it for the men as well. Right. And I thought that was a really, really interesting comment, quite beautifully done. And it was a gorgeous piece of chain mail as well. Um, Awesome. Yeah. And now I'm imagining like, you know, uh, a paladin wearing like plate armor just over his crotch, you know, like a a cod piece or whatever, you know, like if if it makes (laughs) sense in that context, then, then everyone should, should do it. And there certainly are examples of games like that. But I think that the the big, big challenge is, um, you know, there's, it's really frustrating when you're playing a game. And I, I remember this, like it was yesterday when I was younger, where it was like, okay, I was so frustrated watching movies and playing games when it, every depiction of a woman in a crisis was a woman turning over on her, you know, stiletto pumps and generally mucking things up for the the hero. And I would, I, I thought, is, is that what, is that what women do? Are they completely useless during times of crisis? Do they, and you know, growing up as I did on a farm, I knew that to be the absolute opposite that the women I grew up with were, you know, uh, could, could, you know, haul hay hay bales and, you know, uh, rustle cattle and, you know, take care of, you know, large animals and were really, really capable. But then the depiction that we saw in media was of a, you know, uh, ditzy, disorganized, constantly wrecking things, in, incapable of running, incapable of fighting, uh, depiction of, of of womanhood, and it was so frustrating to me as a kid. And I, I thought, like, I don't even want, I don't want, I don't buy into that. That's not something I want to be when I grow up. And it's frustrating, I think, for a lot of identities to see these. We still play the games. It's this great notion of you make do because you still want to play. Yeah. But it's sort of like, uh, you you accept it because it's everywhere and you can't find anything else. So you try to find your heroes in small places wherever you can. And, you know, for all, the longest time in my early life, I, I loved Quake. I loved Doom. I crashed networks, you know, in early uh, video gaming to play those games. And I always, you know, you'd always have to play uh, as the, you know, the essentially archetypal space marine or whatever um and i for a while thought i hate entertainment that's targeted at women that's not real entertainment that's not and you know that's not being a real gamer if you're playing something that isn't you know full of muscles and you know blood and and bullets 
And I think that that happens to a lot of gamers where you say, okay, that, well, this is, this is the cool stuff, you know, and there are no women in it, but it's cool. That's cool media. I want to be a part of, of that culture. And I think, I think a lot of women sort of grapple with that. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, my wife, you're nailing it. I just love this so much. It just like reaffirms what my wife's been telling me. And I listen, I listen. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it's, it's something before I was married that I wasn't that aware of. Um, because it that's the normalcy of it. Like, yep. like, that's how normalized it's been. And you become complacent. And now that someone's brought it up, I'm just like, seeing it everywhere on my own. And, and I, and now we got to fix it. So yeah, it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. When I was going through the literature, um, I read things in the 60s and 70s, in the in the 30s, in the 20s, that could have been written today, right? Really? Yeah. And it, it that made me sad. Um, it kind of depressed me. But it, the, the one thing that I think is really, really interesting, exactly as you say, is um, a lot of spheres, so I worked in, you know, software uh, developments, R&D. Um, and one of the things that I, I learned, you know, in, in that work was the default human, the, the imagined audience for, you know, software, and just to use that example, was always a, a guy. Um, it was a guy with a certain kind of educational background. Um, and so a lot of product that we shipped was meant for a particular person who thought in a particular way and was, you know, the imagined default human, the mainstream, as we imagine it in, you know, software development, healthcare, um, gosh, name the sphere, you know, media production, anywhere, is the default human, the, the you know, non-niche, non-boutique, non-indie uh, human is a white, male, typically suburban, middle-class person. The composite character, you know, we, we use this idea in marketing, uh, the per person you have in your head as you're building something is that person, and then other then you then you start to think, okay, well, how do we make this product for others and others, or maybe we'll put it and we'll make it pink and we'll sort of reskin it and we'll, you know, and that'll be for women, okay, and that's maybe secondary tier if we need to, you know, a little additional revenue. Um, you know, medical devices, medical treatment, medical research, um, software development, hardware development, the way we construct cars, um, the way we construct airplanes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are all this imagined default human. So product production tends to be for that audience. And everybody else gets ignored, right? And you see lots, there's tons of examples, which I collect because I used to collect them when I was in industry, uh, where you have just incredible epic fails on the part of product developers, because it's like they can't, you know, I mean, look at look at the, the world of AI, where facial recognition doesn't work on people with darker complexions, just doesn't. Because the people making these products are white males, and they tested on white males, and so on and so forth. So you create products, because you can't imagine another audience. And this is a huge, like, I watched businesses fail because of this, because you know, I think one of the things I was telling students recently, I, I'm uh, helping with a course on board games, actually, at the University of Toronto. And one of the big things I hope people take away from the university experience and just scholarship in general is you should stop centering yourself. You are not the audience. This is a this is a big trend in product development now. It's called design thinking. You've probably heard of it. And it's this idea that you should have empathy for an audience that is not you, Right. 
And I watched, you know, small tech companies and and mid-sized game companies fail because they were they were designing for themselves, right? They never thought about anybody other than themselves. And that's where you end up with things like huge accessibility failures, blindsides in terms of like lack of sensitivity around gender or race or uh, sexual orientation, ableism. Uh, you end up with products that don't work for people who are colorblind or have accessibility or mobility issues because, you know, the people who made those products never, ever thought even one moment about someone who maybe had, you know, a lack of, um, you know, English language capability or didn't understand an inside joke about something that required, you know, decades of pop culture knowledge, right? And I worked with teams who literally would say to me, oh, well, we don't care about that. Those people are not our concern. And I, and it was I used to get into big fights actually with software development teams, and and game companies saying we we want to make it hard, we want to we want to make it punishing. If they can't hack it, we don't care. And it was a real sort of um, toxic machismo kind of attitude, and I see that sort of stagnant uh, stagnating and delimiting and 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 really stunting. Uh, growth in certain companies, because, you know, I talk to people every day, you know, and looking at video games who say, I, I would love to play that game, but I just can't journey into the center of that game, because I'm not good enough. And I think like, why would a company make a game that most people can't play or use? Right. And that's why, you know, game as performance has become a thing, because some people, you know, they want to see what happens in the game, but they have to get someone else to play it. Like, why would you make a product like that? I just don't understand that. Um, you know, if you got five bucks from a billion people for your accessible game uh, versus getting, you know, $300 from 1500 <laughs> like, why wouldn't you want to do that? And it's a really, really interesting puzzle. And I think it's it comes back to this notion of like, you know, when you're, this is a, a McLuhan quote that I really like, um, a fish knows exactly nothing about water because it has no anti-environment to compare it to, right? We're, we're swimming in, a, in a, 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 the water of ideology and we've all, you know, kind of bought into the idea that, yeah, default human is a, is a guy. It's a guy. It's a white guy. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the best kind of person to be. That's the person that the entire culture kind of centers, and, you know, uh, all of these other things are just kind of concerns. People are, they're just griping and complaining. You know, sure, they, they say they're not being heard, but they're really swimming against this sort of the entire um, force of the ideology, that water rushing up against them. And, you know, we shouldn't care about that. That's, you know, they're being, they're being complainers. They're, they're, they're focused on grievance. And it's so hard not to center yourself. I think it's, it's really hard conceptually for people not to center themselves because they think their experience is everyone's experience. And I think it's really tough and we have gotten very lazy as a culture. Um, and I see it every day and I, I, I have it too, where I make the mistake of thinking my experience is everybody else's experience. It's tough for us to do. And, and it's even tougher when you're exhausted, right? You're, you're, you get even less able to take someone else's perspective the more you're in debt, the more you're exhausted, the more you're sick, the more you're overworked. Um, and there are a lot of things that make it really hard for people to take other people's perspectives, which I think, you know, creates this kind of, you know, selfish, selfishness. And that the fact that everyone centers themselves in everything that they 
do and say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I don't know. I'm thinking of like television and book writing. It, one of the big things that they've, they stress in that is write what you know. Uh, and, and as you say all that, I'm like, well, <laughs> like, yeah, there's a truth to that. You know, you have relatable experiences. How often are you watching a TV show where you're like, oh yeah, I relate to that. But like also push the boundary, like empathize and write beyond yourself. Well, um, the, the, the issue really comes down to, um, that's a, that's a part of it. Um, it's a, it is, it's an interesting point you're making, but what if you have an entire, like, just take your example, yeah. publishing structure that isn't really that interested in hearing what, I'm just going to use a real example, an indigenous woman who grew up in Northern Alberta thinks. And when she comes to a publishing company and says, I really want to publish my perspective, I want to write what I know, they say, yeah, we don't really see a market for that. Um, we don't really like this perspective. It's going to make people feel uncomfortable, you know, maybe self-publish, right? And th that those are real stories. Um, when you and, and when you look at the, actually, one of the, the reasons I wanted to do this research in, in board gaming was I was looking at publishing stats, you know, who works in publishing, it's majority white, uh, major, majority able-bodied, no disabilities. Uh, they tend to be more affluent. They tend to have like really good educations, um, which means they come from a degree of wealth. Um, and they're not, they're not interested in anything that doesn't really uh, conform to their own experiences because they can't see a market for something they can't even imagine. And there was a story, um, I think I've, I, t I tell this sometimes at, when, when I give talks, about Dr. Rita Deverell. Um, she was a, a black journalist in Canada. She was from the prairies, like me. And she grew up on a farm um, and had a farm. Uh, but she's black. And she would regularly pitch stories about, you know, the, you know, quote unquote, this coded language, Heartland Canada. And she would be told by her producers, you know, you've got to appeal to Susie in Saskatchewan. And who is Susie in Saskatchewan? Susie in Saskatchewan is um, white. And maybe she's a little, maybe she's middle-aged. She's white, she's middle-aged. So any story that Dr. Deverell, a black journalist, wanted to tell on national broadcasters or, or our national television stations, got kiboshed, right? Got, got cut because it was not that interesting to the real audience, real audience, real Canadians who were white, right? And we make those decisions every day. Like I worked in newsrooms and I would pitch stories, you know, come in and say, okay, what about this? What about that? And my editor, mostly white man, <laughs> would say, nobody cares about that. Nobody's interested in that story. Okay. And our readership at the time, you know, he probably was even basing it on some kind of preference uh, based on research, sometimes not, but with our readership was overwhelmingly um, male, uh, not white, but overwhelmingly uh, men. And, you know, there's a, and there's a reason why that is. It's kind of a vicious circle, right? If there's never any content for anybody other than the audience you got, then there, then there's never an audience, you know, you just, you're not, you're not creating or expanding your circle. You're just constantly eating your own tail. Um, so that's a huge issue. So that's a systemic challenge. And, yeah. you know, I think that you're absolutely right. Like, that's a truism, like, write what you know, be authentic. 
stick to your maybe knitting. That does work. But if you only ever allow white voices, men, to tell their stories, then that's all you're going to get, right? So it's it's about labor. It's about labor. You know, who you hire. Yeah. This is one of the coolest things that I've ever heard. And you just blew my mind because I just like, wow. Yeah, because it, it is right way you know. The problem isn't necessarily the writers. Uh, not necessarily. But it's the yeah. network. It's the publisher. It's the, you know, like, and, and they have built this audience. And now, like, guess what? By at like you already have this established audience. If you just start hiring people of color, hiring people from different perspectives, you're gonna you're gonna help that existing audience be able to empathize and relate to that other audience and pull that other audience in. I'm just like, holy cow, this is amazing. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it, there's also like I got, um, and I I really am so grateful to. It was a person at a conference, and I completely agreed with her. I get, I got up and it was at a conference about, um, you know, working, it was, it was a, a category of scholarship about how to get girls, young women into STEM, you know, uh, board game publishing in, in my, uh, in my particular example. And this woman stood up after having done some really fascinating research about, um, like there was a discussion about coding boot camps and, and, and STEM and tech initiatives to get women in and uh, Black, Indigenous, uh, persons of color, people of the global majority into coding. That was the discussion. And one of the things that this woman confronted me about, and I completely agree with her, and I think about it all the time. She said, well, you're you're sending these women, people, people of color, into these environments, and they're not safe. And she wasn't wrong, because she had the supportable evidence to, to uh, back it up. So you hire a bunch of people um, to diversify your workforce, but it is not safe to speak up in meetings. It is not safe to um, it is not safe to bring your authentic perspective to the table. And I've been in some of those meetings where it's like, yeah, we're not really interested in hearing about that. You're disrupting the meeting. We don't want to talk about this. We're going to be talking about what we've always done. You're new here. Be quiet, right? And that's when you run into trouble. And I think that another big failure is a lot of organizations are fueled by inertia, right? You, you Like publishing is, is a great example of that, where we are going to market this thing that worked before because we know that it worked. So we're going to market it again. We're going to do a sequel or we're going to, you know, exploit this IP for thousands of years because or hundreds of years. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's something like I think it's I can't remember offhand. I wish I could remember, but two, 200 plus more. There is more. I know that I'm getting this wrong, but hundreds of examples of Lord of the Rings games on Board Game Geek. I used to have the number memorized, but now it's, it's escaping me. Hundreds, hundreds of Lord of the Rings games. Why? Because we know that IP works. That works. Are, and and are, you've cultivated an entire community that likes that game. Let's give them some more of what they liked. More, 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 more. Right? And when someone comes into an organization with that inertia, that kind of, well, this is how we do things here. And I'm a great example of this. I did this a lot in tech because I am stupidly brave. I would simply raise my hand and say, okay, but what about this? What do, what do we, why don't we take this a different direction? Here's what my research tells us. And they would say, oh, ho, ho, ho. literally I'd be laughed at. Oh, no. And they would say, well, we don't do that. We're not interested in that. I mean, when I would pitch to that one client I mentioned, and I would say, okay, you know what? We need to start marketing to 
Um, at the time, there were like new publications that were cropping up in in Toronto and Ontario in Canada that were focused on the LG, LGBTQ plus community. And I would say this 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 community is affluent. They are educated. They need they need your stuff, and they would laugh at me. They would literally laugh at me. Oh. And so it was it was really hard to pitch those types of, and I kept doing it because I am stupidly brave. And I would constantly say, you're missing something. And a lot of my colleagues would say, why do you do that? Why do you bring this up in meetings? You're making everyone uncomfortable when you say that's racist or that's a problem. Whoa, stop, wait. Like, because as a reporter, I would think in headlines and I would say, okay, you can't do that because that's a problem. What happens to people like that in organizations that are sort of fueled by this same old, same old inertia, they get, they leave, right? So you can hire, but if you haven't fixed that cultural problem you have in your organization of, you know, the manager or the the business owner being the smartest guy in the room, no one can tell him often otherwise, (laughs) then the problem will persist. And you'll have people who, you know, leave to start their own companies because, Nobody was listening. You hired me, but you're not interested in my authentic perspective. Um, So that's another problem. It's really multifaceted. It has to be solved at multiple levels. It's not one and done. You can't just say, you know, I used to say there was a great line, um, Mia Consalvo, a great academic, where it's like, um, add women and stir. You can't just add women. This is just, you know, one example. Add women and stir and hope you've got diversity fixed because that doesn't always work either. If you, if you bring in someone who, you know, is a, a white woman who has been, you know, kind of raised in a particular type of toxic masculine environment, um, she might not have the perspective you're looking for in terms of it's expanding your audience um, because that's not going to be the solve. Like bring in a couple of white women that make you feel comfortable. You can show that your board's diversified and boom, you're done. No. Right, because it's still not going to make, it's still not going to help you expand your market unless you change your organizational culture, unless you change the way things are funded, you change the way things are greenlit, you bring in more voices very intentionally, and you let them speak their authentic truth. And if you don't do that, then you're going to have more of the same. And again, like I say, you know, I read uh, stuff from the 70s that could have been written today. We're not making that much progress unfortunately. Wow. Well put. I mean, uh, are you, are you working with any like publishers in the board game world? Like, or has anybody reached out to you to, to kind of take some advice? You know, that's actually something I've been a little surprised by. Um, I did actually do uh, the great organization uh, game and lab was super kind to let me, um, help with an event that Eric Lang and Mandy Hutchison um, did uh, in the summer of last year um, with regard to, you know, inclusiveness in the role-playing community. Um, And I was super privileged to be a part of that. Um, I basically moderated that session. I think that's the only thing that I've ever done officially for publishers. I I have been a little surprised that I've, I've heard, you know, very encouraging things from publishers for sure. Uh, here and there. Um, John Nephew from Atlas Games has been incredibly gracious. So nice. Such a nice guy. Um, And, you know, saying like, this is really important. And I'm sharing this with my team. Um, You know, 
I had um, a really, really lovely encounter, uh, which st I still like cherish. Um, to this day, I actually led off one of my conference presentations last year with this Andrew um, uh, Hackard uh, from uh, Steve Jackson's games, who, who sadly passed away last year. Um, sent me an incredibly encouraging note saying, you know, your research is fantastic. I'm sharing it widely. Um, and that meant a lot to me. But, you know, no publishers have really approached me to say, hey, come in and talk to my team. Um, and I, I, I guess I, I was sort of hoping that that kind of dialogue might happen. You know, I'm not uh, obviously, I, I don't get any money for this research. I get uh, absolutely nothing. Um, I, I think I did an accounting. Uh, someone had this really great. It was um, uh, Kelvin um, uh, Loon, uh, who was basically saying, you know, uh, tabletop paid me. And I my, I think my accounting was I got one $500 honorarium, and I think 495 from Medium articles that I've been posting. And that's it. Um, I have, I, you know, so I'm not interested in money, but I am interested in having that dialogue with publishers because I think that, you know, my decades in tech, my decades in, you know, life sciences, doing market research tells me that something's wrong with the board. And I have a couple of, you know, impending articles coming out, which I hope will keep the dialogue going. But no, like I haven't really had formal discussions with publishers Um and I think that I think it is an imperative, you know, um, if and I, I know working in corporations, you know, and I have tremendous amounts of um, empathy. Uh, when I was in corporations, I tried to do research, but you're you're just running. You're just running full tilt maybe every day, especially if you're a small organization and you don't really have time to sit and think and you're not necessarily consuming research. Um but I think, you know, having someone come in, you know, if, if it's me or anyone doing this kind of research and talking to your team and helping them to sort of do that level set and maybe even critiquing your organizational structure might be advantageous. But, you know, in answer to your question, way too long winded there. Uh, not really. You know, not, you know, the I get the I get lots of approbation again, John Nephew being a great example of that with Atlas Games, who's given me tremendous amounts of assists with uh, extremely mean trolls in the comments. Uh, he's a great guy. Um, he's been very supportive. Uh, as I mentioned, Andrew Hackford is very was very, very supportive. Uh, but that's about it. So I hope to see that. Change. And I'm I'm genuinely surprised, but I guess not surprised, you know, like. People will, I'm sure that big names and companies are reading your research and trying to make those changes, uh, but they also might not want to push it that hard. And so they they can feel good being like, well, I read this. Or maybe they reached out to, started reaching out to some other local women or something. And, and I'm, I hope that that kind of change is happening. But it seems like a super obvious thing. Like, hey, there's this, there's this gal who is doing all this awesome research. Let's reach out to her and like, see if she can help us understand a little more. Like what? Come on companies. Yeah. You know, and that's the kind of, I, I was actually saying at one point, like I would do it for free. I think in so far as I'm quite desperate that, you know, um, one of the things I made a, a very early on career decision as an academic is I, strongly believe in the open movement, um, which is this idea that everything shouldn't be locked behind paywalls. And I, I'm actually bringing my corporate experience to that because when you're in corporations, you, you your boss won't always green light, you know, a, 
you know, green light a, a publisher paywall to, you know, journal articles on, you know, whatever you, whatever information you need. Often it's very difficult even to get um, access to industry, industry analyst reports because they're expensive. And so, especially if you're a small company, you're not going to pay thousands of dollars a year for, you know, access to a portal for industry uh, analysis or academic research. Yet there was so much research happening. And so I decided that everything I was going to do was going to be open. So it wasn't going to be behind a publisher paywall. It was going to be in open journals because I wanted to affect some measure of change because you can, you know, as an academic, just a little inside uh, baseball here, you get, you know, these large journal opportunities, but no one will ever see your article or a very rarefied few will see your article. And I kind of wanted to, even though it is very painful, uh, make it available to everybody because, you know, I want feedback and I want people to start talking about the research because I think I'm, I was very, very saddened by the slow pace of change. And I was hoping to be a little bit of a catalyst to say, hey, you know, and it, like I, I the, the, it's often attributed to Peter Drucker, but is I don't think uh, exactly his quote. It's um, where it says that which is measured gets managed. And when you're in a in a sector, uh, as board gaming is, where things are not very transparent, there is not a lot of accountability. Things are kind of mom and pop shop or smaller uh, organizations. Um, you're not necessarily, you know, accountable to anyone. So you do what you prefer and what is comfortable. And that's I sympathize with. I fully sympathize with. And you might also be worried about, you know, you might think it's not broken. So why should we fix it? Let's not go and you know, kick the hornet's nest and ask for everybody to change. Because it's tough to do that. To, uh, you know, even, even in a small group, it's tough to say, okay, we're going this way now. Um, that can be very, very difficult. And especially if you founded an organization and it's your baby. I've watched CEOs for years and years who are like, yeah, I don't really want an organizational consultant or a person, market analyst to come in and critique my organization because I feel good here. This is, you know, even though you, you're going to stay small, you know, you're going to stay delimited and stunted and stellified and same old, same old. I feel comfortable here, so I'm not changing. And that's that's pretty true of everybody. So I sympathize. Um, but if you don't, you'll never, ever get to the place where you're, you know, maybe you're a, dom a dominant market player. Uh, you'll never get to a place where your audience is bigger than you ever imagined. You will stay in your very, very comfortable, well-lined nest, doing the same things over and over again without ever changing. And, you know, I think the toughest thing in the world is asking somebody to say, have you thought of this? And, I, you know, that was the role that I played when I was in industry, where I was the, you know, kind of provocateur and saying, I'm not sure that's the right way to go. Here's research. And oftentimes, you know, regrettably, a lot of senior leaders were like, yeah, no, I'm good. We're fine. Right. And I watch companies implode as a result. And, you know, yeah. the other just quick aside, just to scare everybody, like 95% of projects fail. Um, I'm, a, I'm a certified project manager, among other things. And, you know, you do research and you find out that, yeah, most projects fail. They, they go over budget. They're not on time. Um, look at video game launches, right? And that's because a lot of leaders say, no, we're good. We're going to ship this. Uh, we're going to ship Cyberpunk, even though it's not ready, because it's Christmas. Because <laughs> I know Christmas is a good time to sell things. So 
we're doing it. And I think we can see like leaders particularly, and this is where I sort of call upon leaders to try not to be or think (laughs) you're the smartest person in the room and that you have all the answers. You need to go outside of yourself, ask some hard questions, and it's so tough to get people to do that um, because things are changing and you need to change along with it or you will be a footnote in history, if that. My dad always told me that to run a company, you shouldn't be the smartest person in the room. You should be surrounded by the smartest people in the room. Yeah. And you got to listen. You got to listen. Exactly. Yeah. Like you shouldn't know everything. You should know you don't know everything. Surround people that know everything about what they need to talk about or will do the research or passionate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I actually, I I tried to do uh, wish fulfillment uh, when I took senior leadership positions. I tried to be Picard, right? Uh, in insofar as options, people like give me options. Nice, yeah. And when someone said, you know, and I tried to create an environment in my meetings, uh, I'm not sure I always succeeded, but to say um, options, and I'm really listening, and you can really tell me. And even if it's like I think your idea is awful, Tanya, I would listen. And I, and you know, more often than not, my team saved me because sometimes I would say, okay, I'm throwing something out here. What about this? And they would be like, okay, no, because, right? And I and I said, I'd rather know than not know. You will not offend me if you tell me I am wrong. And I think that that is the key to everything right now. Being able to take feedback with grace and um, openness is like super tough. <laughs> but if leaders right now with facts changing on the ground every minute do not do this. Oh, I, I fear for them. I really do. You got to You got to take in new information. Things are changing. I've said this before on the podcast. Uh, so listeners might be familiar, but my personal motto is always, and I feel like the theme of this episode for me is I'm a better person than I was last year, but a worse person than I will be next year. And that goes with like education, you know, like I'm always hoping to change. I'm hoping to fix my, you know, my uh, subconscious biases. I, so this helps so much. And I am so grateful that you are willing to talk to me and that you call me out on certain things, you know, and you're like, you know what? Like, I understand where you're coming from. That's wrong. You know, like, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Yeah. And that's really important to do. So sorry. Thank you. No, no, no. That's that's very gracious of you. Yeah, and 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 honestly, um, I make mistakes every day, you know. And and I am so. And I say this a lot. This is actually something Susan uh, Suzanne Sheldon said uh, recently last year, and I I so love it because it 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 perfectly encapsulates what I think we all need, which is feedback is love, right? Sometimes even like really nasty feedback teaches me something, right? And I think that that's, um, that's a really, really tough thing. Um, but if you're going to, like, like you say, I really like what you said, um, that you're a worse person than you will be next year. That constant, to, to be successful in this time is to be agile and to be taking new information in, innovating, thinking about new ways of doing things and being just really open. And I am so people have called me out and I, I am still, I still write them to say, thank you for doing that. Because I don't know, like, that's the whole thing about being 
I think a wise person, I'm not a wise person, and I will never will be. But getting to wisdom eventually, hopefully someday, uh, I guess we'll never get there, um, any of us, but um, is to, to say, thank you for correcting me. And thank you for telling me something I didn't know. I didn't know about your experience. And being willing to take that in and not saying, oh, well, that makes me feel bad. So stop, stop telling me that. Um, that's a big problem in our culture. I think we've got this sort of radical in- individualism where we think uh, everything that I need to know is inside of me. Nope. <laughs> nope. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like the enemy to research and to growth and you know, like, wow. Yeah. yeah. But beautifully put. Uh, what is there any other research you want to talk about before we kind of go into anything else? Uh, no, no. Um, I think that covers a lot of it. Again, you know, you, if you look at it, just a quick uh, one sentence uh, f- finale is, you know, white um, white males, uh, straight white males in the U.S., largest consumer hub in the world, um, make up about 25 percent of the population um, in the U.S. And so that's small and it's, it's getting smaller. Uh, would you base an entire market on that? And what I'm seeing in the board game research is 80% of the more than 80%, 92.6% of the labor pool of that um, industry in game design is white male. And 80% of roughly 80% of the representation in board games is white men. So is that a recipe for success? No, it is not. Um, you know, again, just just pure math. Uh, it is not. And people make do, right? Uh, I play games. But um, if you want to expand your market, you want to really radiate out from your beachhead. You, this is not the way. So board games need to need to change. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about you on Our Family Plays Games. You've been working with them. I had Mick and Starla on several months ago. And that resonates with me what you were just talking about because of a conversation I had with them where, so my wife works in a title one school. So like everybody there, the majority is under the poverty line Uh, and white kids are the minority there. Right. Like, uh, and so I brought that up and I was talking about like, you know, how do we reach that audience there? And Starla was kind enough to like, it, it was such a beautiful moment because she didn't, you know, she like listened to me talk about that. And she's like, um, you know, not all black people are poor. And I were in poverty. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, of course I didn't mean that. And like, but it was such a good conversation. It's, it's the reason that I point people to that episode so often when they are like, oh, you do this podcast. I'm like, yeah, listen to this episode because it's one of the like most powerful episodes I have. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so I just want to share that with you because we have that little connection there of, of Starla and Mick. And, uh, and so what have you been doing for them? So I have a recurring uh, monthly segment on, and I'm so grateful to Starla and Mick. They change the industry every single day. Um, and I was a huge fan of theirs, you know, before before they gave me this opportunity. It was a really amazing um, knowledge, mo- we call it in academia, knowledge mobilization exercise, where I am, I'm, they're very patient with me. I am not a YouTuber, uh, as you will see, uh, potentially, from my episodes, uh, but I am trying, and I'm going to get better and better, I promise you, uh, making Starla every single time, but I'm sharing my research on their channel. And, 
you know, they've, they've given me this platform, which is fantastic. Um, it also actually appears on uh, Omaha, Nebraska television, which I am so uh, glamorized by because as a kid, I used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I was fascinated by Omaha. So this is a, you know, huge, uh, huge, huge deal for me. But they, they allow me access to their channel to share some of this research and share some of the stories that I've, I've heard from, while I was conducting uh, my respondents, my research respondents, while I was conducting the research, and I promised my respondents that I was going to make the, this research available to them. Um, so this is part of me fulfilling my promise to make this open, to make it accessible, to make my research accessible, not as a dissertation, but, you know, with full of footnotes, but rather as, as a, as a, uh, an animated, um, I make an animated video. Yep. But Mick and Starla are, are absolutely fantastic. I love them to pieces. They're doing, um, great, great work for the hobby. And they have this voices segment that I participate in. I'm super grateful to them. And it, it appears every month, typically on the, I believe, second uh, second Wednesday of every, or no, the first Wednesday of every month. I'm going to mess it up. I will give you the exact uh, information. I think it fluctuates based on the, the calendar, but it's usually at the beginning of the, every month. And uh, there's two episodes of Our Family Plays Games uh, Voices, um, where it's just a panel of, of different voices talking about board games. And they've been super intentional. And they're the way they organize everything, just as a, an aside, talking about great leaders. They, they hold meetings where we they do check-ins with us. They set up themes. Like, it's like a really well-run, like, magazine. Um, very, very professional, extremely, extremely organized and caring, right? That's, I think, and being really open. They're the kinds of managers we need to see everywhere, right? I, I have so much respect for the way that they're approaching their work. Like as they are on the screen is as they are behind the scenes. They're, they couldn't be lovelier, more open, more compassionate leaders. And the way they've organized this is just uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, Starla is, uh, and Mick and Grant are just incredibly good at what they do and they deserve three times the numbers of viewers that they've got because <laughs> their, their stuff is just amazing. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, that, that, what a cool opportunity. I'm glad that you have that platform. I'm glad that they're giving people that platform too. I, it's incredibly generous of them. Oh yeah. And like, uh, going back to Eric Lang again, he talks about if you have a platform, you should use it to, you know, like to, uh, amplify voices that need to be amplified and amplify causes that need to be amplified. And, and so that resonates. I, yeah, that's so cool. Uh. <laughs> uh, well, let's go outside of board games. Sure. Uh, what do you do outside of board games? I work. Um, so yeah, one of the things that uh, I always feel really bad, I try to explain it to people. Um, I have four jobs. It, which I, you know, joke, uh, creates a Voltron of uh, near solvency. Um, school is expensive, uh, just everyone. So, you know, this is a public service announcement. Even in Canada? Yeah, it, it's it's less bad than the U.S. I'm shocked. I continue to be shocked by U.S. Uh, rates for university and tuition. Oh, my goodness, I can't even imagine. Uh, but it's, it's pretty hard here, too, although not as hard as it is in the U.S. Uh, caveat there. But... Um, yeah, no. So I have a lot of uh, part-time jobs that I work. Um, I'm not a tenured faculty. Uh, I have the few, few very cranky folks said, how much is she being paid to do this research? Uh, the answer is not much. Uh, you know, remember I said $500, which was an honorarium I asked for. 
and just for my time. And uh, I think, yeah, four four ninety five. Is that four dollars and ninety five or four hundred? Yeah, four dollars and ninety five cents. Perfect. I think uh, that's important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not not even. I haven't even. And it's it's always really interesting. I like to be really honest about this stuff, uh, so people know that you can't uh, you know quit your job and write medium articles all day. It's important, but uh, I think that. Yeah, I I work pretty much constantly. Um, so this is a nice break, not not working. Um, and uh, I have a daughter uh, who is uh, here in Toronto uh, with with me. And um, you know, I talk to her on the phone because she's in a different part of Toronto, and we I don't have a car anymore. We uh, lost it just at the beginning of the pandemic. It got in, we got into a little accident, and it got totaled and. So no, no more car. Uh, it's fine. It was actually, I think it's kept us healthy because we, we stay in quite a bit, but, um, but yeah, um, that's, I pretty much work all the time. So uncomfortable answer. And then, you know, I watch board game media and I play board games. So nice. do you still play video games? Oh, a thousand percent. Yes. Uh, every evening I play slay the spire, uh, the daily challenge and, uh, Sometimes uh, curse make uh, curse words, uh, and some some days uh, I I succeed uh, way past my wildest expectations. But uh, yeah, we we do a lot of micro gaming, my partner and I, because we we both have uh, too many. We're the part of the precariat, the precariously employed, and my partner will play Littlewood, which is kind of a nice micro game, and we also are playing, um, which I highly highly recommend, uh, the calendar um, sundial games, uh, uh, one a day RPG. Um, and we're loving that. I think that that is such that is a great example of someone who has pivoted and realizes people have less time, right? Yeah. So they've made something that's like super small and digestible and just gives you that little hit of like gaming. And it's so, so amazing. I can't recommend that enough. It's a, a great game. That's awesome. I may have to check that out. I've seen them and I've been like, maybe that'd be fun to do. Like, so it's, you can it's totally something. Catch up. You, yeah, we, it, we sometimes we run out of time and, and you can catch up. Uh, you could do a week, you know, fairly readily on the weekends. And Oh, nice. Yeah. And it's like it. a good, it's not like a one player type thing. Like you can do that with your partner. We, we absolutely do. I uh, will fail a challenge. He will succeed uh, back and forth. Sometimes we, you know, he'll get the treasure and I won't, but we just do like multiplayer solitaire. Okay. And it's, it's fun. Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. I forgot to ask, what is, this is the hardest question on the whole show. What's your favorite board game? Oh, dear. <laughs> um, that's, ooh, that's a really, really tough one. Um, okay, so favorite is such a hard thing. Right. And you oh, can do a couple if you, like, you, sometimes you, know, you can't do one. The game that we play probably the most or have played the most is Ascension. Um, and I love a deck builder. I love deck builders so much. And, you know, we also play Star Realms a lot. And it tended to be because we used to have really long commutes that we I would just bring the, you know, the, the apprentice pack of Ascension in my purse. And I would just have it. Um, and we have Star Realms, same thing. A little bag where I keep some of these games. And we just play that like over and over and over again. It was so good. Um Oh, this is such a tough question. <laughs> you know, and it's it's so variable too. We have a lot of affection for um, abstract strategy games. Oh boy. You know, it's so hard. Um, what was one we played recently? I like Reiner Knizia games quite a bit because I like the diversity win condition thing so much 
where it's like, you know, you can't just collect all blue and think you're going to win. Um, I do like those games. I think they're kind of really nice and elegant. Oh my goodness. Um, this is such a tough question. <laughs> you oh have some, you have good answers there. I mean, <laughs> you've named a couple and that's great. Well, and the, the other big challenge is right now, our favorite game is that Sundell games, uh, you know, uh, oh, RPG right. calendar of a day, because one of the things we're recognizing, and this is something I also talk about in my research is people's lives have changed quite a bit in terms of having less and less incremental time. Like if you do leisure time stats, we're losing the weekend. We've lost the weekend. We're losing, we've lost our evenings. Right. And people are getting, you know, having to work more and more jobs to stay afloat. I'm one of those examples. And that if you can get a game like Tussie Mussy, Elizabeth Hargrave, that you can play standing up that integrates into your life. You can pick up, put down, play it in five minutes that's the game you're going to go with and i'm starting to realize like the market needs to change to be more like you know what was called by jesper jewel the casual revolution video games which is like those quick hit mobile games you can play on the subway stop start continue right if you can do that with board games which i think button shy has done um you got yourself a winning formula right now because people have lost lost their leisure time for all kinds of, you know, big, big macroeconomic reasons. Yeah. That is really fascinating. Look at, look at that mind of yours. <laughs> You've got like a real mind for it. Companies talk to Tanya. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, well, there's just, there's a lot of audience research I think that might be missing, you know, and that's, um, that was my specialty when I was working in industry was creating corporate dashboards for, you know, executives, literally executives would wander the halls with, you know, the Tony Stark, uh, dashboard to say, okay, what's going on with my business. Unfortunately though, I still, you know, would, would encounter the occasional business leader would say, who would say, I hate this fact. This fact is wrong. And, and be like, no, I'll, there's no way I'll ever believe this fact. And, you know, to their, to their historical you know, uh, demise. Uh, they, they, they ignored some of the, the fact patterns in, in the data and didn't like what they, they heard and just ignored it or said, remove that from the dashboard, you know, and then, they, then it's gone. Right. Uh, Cause you have to do what the boss says, but um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really important thing to, to know your audience, know what's going on with people because yeah. uh, they're, they're buying your products. Yeah. Well, let's do ridiculous theme. I, I briefed you on that. And so ridiculous theme, we come up with ridiculous themes for board games. I'm really excited. Did you think of one at all or have one yeah. handy? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the things I was a little obsessed with when I was working in corporations was, you know, I, I had sort of a, a mildly ridiculous corporate record collection, you know, like the GM choir singing songs about building cars or, you know, the KFC Christmas album. Uh, I loved corporate theme things because there are, um, there are, there's a dearth of corporate theme things, you know, business. Um, there, there's this idea, uh, Ian Bogost, uh, who's a game scholar, has this idea, what's, it's like a, a, a theory or a concept called procedural rhetoric, where, you know, um, I don't think any game has really captured the boredom and sort of sadness of working in an office significantly well enough <laughs> especially for people who work you know in like gray cubicles uh which i did for years and years and i would really love a ridiculous theme game uh, some kind of corporation maybe you could you could make it sort of a 
a, you know, a corporate simulator. And there are a few examples like this, uh, where you have to do really mundane things, but maybe there's like a, a, you know, maybe it's all monsters, you know, that work there, or you're, you know, you're a damage control for superhero corporation. Uh, And I think that does exist, actually, uh, the sort of damage control theme. But um, where you capture some of the mundane and sad, but uh, hilarious uh, things that can happen in corporate environments. And I think that that would be a really interesting game theme for people to, you know, kind of capture that, that painful experience of working in a gray, you know, same, same old, same old uh, drudgerous cubicle. And particularly right now, I think a lot of people are, are grappling with the horror of that kind of environment, uh, especially in, in the world of COVID. Uh, so, yeah, it, I don't know if that's ridiculous, but I certainly would love to see more games that are, you know, corporation themed, uh, possibly. Yeah, I think that's ridiculous and awesome. Ridiculous doesn't have to mean bad or anything, right? It's, that's a great idea and it's fun. It's unique. I was thinking of one of just while you were talking about kind of that and reflecting on the... Uh, you know, b- bad CEO, essentially. I've done one in the past where it was like PR for a bad company where like something comes out and you have to twist it. I think one where like almost a co-op game or something where there's like the Automa or whatever, the game system is the CEO and you have to try and get these like facts and the CEO is doing all these things pretty much to self implode this company. And you're just like, but if I try and sneak this fact in, like maybe it can influence it and, Maybe not, though. Like, maybe they'll just end up ignoring me. And <laughs> My God, that is such a brilliant idea. That Because that that's exactly right. Like, when you're working in corporations, sometimes you'll have managers who want to go completely off the rails. They'll get mad at somebody or they'll have an idea that is, you know, so ruinous. It's like, you know, Dunder Mifflin uh, with uh, Michael Scott, where and then you have to come up with ways to s- stop them from doing the awful, awful thing that they're planning. Um, yes, that is such a good idea. I love it. Um, this is, this is, this is a money-making idea you've got here. That's a, that, I love that. That is brilliant. And now Bad somebody boss. go out and make it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my gosh, I have uh, real life anecdotes that I could, I could weave into that in the most generic way possible. Uh, where it's like, how do you distract your bad boss from, you know, doing, said terrible thing of the day yeah that's a that's a money maker right there almost like what is that called subterfuge subterfuge where you kind of have to like sneak it a little bit like try and change it do that sometimes you know like distract them with something else or a meeting or (laughs) nominate them for an award or something i i literally did do that once uh oh my gosh uh when when the person shall remain nameless just to distract them from doing another thing where it's like okay now you've been nominated for this award um yeah because i would do that for you know my clients to say okay well I've, i've you know nominated you for all of these different awards and it helps to keep certain leaders busy um yeah, that is so wild. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would have never thought of that. Like, <laughs> uh, now I'm wondering, like, well, did they ever win the award? Yes, I, I had a really, uh, really decent. Uh, I, I'm pretty good at grant writing and award uh, nominations. That was another specialty of mine. Um, sometimes used for the reasons uh, subterfuge or you know distraction. Um, but yeah, no, there's a tremendous number of award programs out there. If you do research into them, which I did, it was part of my repertoire, um, you can find something. 
um, there in a lot of award programs or unfortunately or fortunately uh, a little cash grabby, right? It's a kind of a war of attrition. Um, if you have the money, um, you might get said award. Um, that's probably not, but that's, that's not in, that's not, I'm not talking about board games. I'm just talking about other sectors, uh, where there's a little bit of an industry yeah. around awards. Yeah. Well, I mean, who knows with the board? I, I would hope not, but you never know. Like the movie industry, right. Awards shows, they talk about how they like, uh, they, there's a lot of politics of like sending the judges gifts and yeah, yep. like. So. That, that that's everyone should know that that is um, that's a dynamic in in every possible sphere of human existence um you're you're dealing with people right we're all it's everything's a human machine and so as a result a lot of things are are not as not as um objective as you'd hope they would be and you know that that kind of fits into our theme too that there's a lot of subjectivity and you know what's in it for me and sort of rooted in individualistic uh, motivation um, that, that, that plays, plays out in, you know, whether people get accolades or jobs or into Canada, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much. This is a blast. This has been a blast. I like, I've learned so much. I feel like this is good. It has to be like one of my staple episodes now of like, Hey, listen to this episode. Cause you'll learn so much. Like go yeah. in with an open heart. It's very, very nice of you to say, uh, Riley, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and I think you do great work. Um, and, and, you know, uh, people like Starla, Mick, Grants, Elizabeth Hargrave, Eric Lang, Mandy Hutchinson, uh, Suzanne Sheldon are doing such fantastic work in making the industry better. Yeah. And you, you are too. Uh, you know, I, I learned from those folks, uh, you know, I learned from the best. So, and I think that uh, the big, the big upshot with all of this is, um, you know, be, be curious. I think, you know, delve into the empiricism, delve, delve into the data. Um, you know, don't assume uh, if you're a leader that you know everything and, um, and, and be open. Wonderful. Uh, well, why don't you go ahead and plug your stuff where people sure. can find you and all that. Yeah, um, I'm at uh, Pobuda, which is P-O-B-U-D-A, Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A, uh, on Twitter. So my last name and first name. Um, I'm also at uh, a website, uh, TanyaPobudaPhD.com. My dissertation will hopefully be defended sometime this spring, and then it will be available to everybody, for everybody to read through uh, the X university library. Um, and I'll make sure that that's available on my Twitter and, and all of my, my, uh, sites. Um, I also, uh, work off as, as noted with, uh, our family plays games, which is a recurring monthly episode. Um, subscribe to our family plays games. It's an amazing channel. And the, our family plays games voices is a great, uh, compendium of different voices in, uh, board gaming. And I'm so honored and privileged to be part of that. And that's what I have to plug. Thank you so much for listening to the Board Game Community Show. I know that I ask people to share the the show with their friends and share it on their social media, but this one, I really, really, really am asking everybody to do that. Please share this. Please, you know, quote, retweet it or or put a little blurb about, oh, I learned this or, oh, this was a really interesting conversation because... This is more than self-promotion at this point. This is more about growth. And I really, really want more people to hear this and people to be able to learn from this conversation that we had. Uh, we covered so many different 
things that were all so important. And there's even a bigger conversation that needs to happen in the industry. And so I am asking for your help to, to help get that change rolling. Uh, I know that people are taking steps, but we've got to push through that comfort zone. I think we, you know, talking about the CEO that, you know, doesn't want to hear the research and all of that, you know, they, you get complacent, you get comfortable, you're doing well. That doesn't mean you're doing right. That doesn't mean that you can't change and grow. So we need to push through that and grow as an industry, as, as a community. If you enjoyed the show, also leave a rating, a review. I would really appreciate that on Apple Podcasts. It helps the podcast get seen more. And you can always follow me on Twitter, at RildNerd. You can reach out to me on there, at me or DM me. You can email me, the board game community show at gmail.com. I have another podcast that's just fun. It's more explicit, though, so if that's not your cup of tea, don't, you know, no worries. Don't don't listen to it. It's an actual play podcast where I play Bunkers and Badasses, which is the tabletop RPG set in the Borderlands universe, which is one of my favorite IPs. And we go on an adventure. I've got four Vault Hunters. One of them's my wife and then three friends. And it's just a blast. It's it's so cool hearing uh, complete strangers all over the world listening to it and saying how funny it is and how they're rolling on the floor laughing. Episode one, I think, has a lot of good stuff. Episode two gets even better. Episode three, even better. Like the episodes just keep getting better and better. So if you don't even like episode one, um, it does have important stuff, but you could skip to episode two or three and episode three has a like previously on and you can just start there. Anyways, I'm rambling about that, but I'm just, I just love doing it so much. And that is called Friend and Foe Adventure Co. You can follow us on social media at FF Adventure Co. Library Labyrinth still has just a little bit of time left. Go check that out. Back it on Kickstarter. It's made by all women. It's the kind of thing we want happening, right? And the main characters are female characters and a non-binary character. So that's the kind of change that we want to see in the industry. More diverse people working on games. All right, that is it. Until next week, keep nerding out. You know, so a lot of my life in the last two years has been, you know, home-based. I have to say, um, and again, this is another plug for Our Family Plays Games, they have been so supportive that it has kept me going during incredibly difficult times. You know, it's it's not easy being a doctoral student, um, you know, in, in this economy, uh, and their constant encouragement, even before I became a contributor to our family place games, like kept me in it. Um, so even though it is not a at the table board game memory, um, that has been like their support, their encouragement, their cheerleading, you know, their, 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 the reception that they, they've given the research that I've done has kept me going. And the second one is, you know, I mentioned Andrew, um, Hackard um, from Steve Jackson Games, who again, sadly passed away. I actually do a a video tribute on my YouTube channel to him uh, because he sent me a geek mail in December 2018 when I was first starting this research and I was getting all kinds of flack. Um, And I was actually thinking, oh, I will never do that again because so many people sent me so many nasty things about my study. And I was like, 
I don't think I can handle this. Like it was awful. And Andrew Hackard sent me a note on Geek Mail, sent me 500 geek gold uh, on Board Game Geek. I, I can barely tell the story without crying. And said, keep it up. Your research is important. And I'm going to share this with everyone I can. And I thought, I'm a huge Munchkin fan. My house has so much Munchkin in it, it's ridiculous. Um, and he said, keep it up. This is important. It's, you know, Steve Jackson Games, guy who was, a, you know, part of the Munchkin, you know, huge, amazing writer. Um, and I thought, okay, then I'm going to keep going. And so I, this is, these are not board game memories, unfortunately, uh, at the table, but they are relationships and things that people shared with me online that I have never, ever forgotten that keep me going every single day. And people in the board gaming community, there's a lot of tough stuff that happens. I won't go into that. But there are people in the board gaming community that are the most generous, the most kind, the most welcoming and encouraging I have ever met in my life. And just, you know, doing that with a, a relative stranger and saying, you know, just keep it up, this is important, is, is, is everything. And I don't think I've ever really encountered that in other sectors. So that's something that tells me that there's a tremendous amount of potential in board gaming. 